As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Discipleship, a talk by Archbishop Julian Porteous at the Immaculata Mission School 2019. Jesus changes lives. True, isn't it? Jesus changes lives. Changes them wonderfully. Changes them for the better. I'm sure many of us would be able to testify to that personally and say, yes, since I've come to know Jesus, my life is different. My life is better. My life is rich. Jesus changes lives and changes them for the better. Mary was speaking this morning about uh, that healing, people experiencing the healing power of, of Jesus and the story of the leper, and the story of the paralytic. You know, those stories are, are really wonderful because I think as Mary was pointing out, the healing that took place in the person was wonderful. That they, the leper, and, and Mary's explaining how that so extraordinarily transformed that leper's life. So too with the paralytic. You can immediately think about how their life after the healing was so extraordinarily different because before they were so handicapped by their, their particular disease, their leprosy or by the uh, paralysis. But really, you know, healings, I've seen it so often, healings are not just about what happens physically to the person. But when somebody's healed, something happens to, to, to the totality of the person. And particularly, it radically changes their whole approach to life, the whole understanding of life, and in a very particular way, changes their relationship with God because they have, have had an immediate, a direct experience of the mercy, of the love, of the healing power of God that they probably never dreamed was possible. But having that direct and immediate experience revealed God to them in a way that they had never really ever thought was possible before. And so their whole relationship with God has been wonderfully transformed. We saw that people that came into contact with Jesus discovered God because Jesus was the one that revealed the true nature of God to them. And they came to see God as he really is. They came to see the true nature of God, that God was a, was a God of compassion and mercy, again, as Mary mentioned, made reference to. That God wanted to come to help them in their need. And that was an extraordinary revelation. We often, that God is up there in heaven. He's got a whole universe to worry about. And yet these people knew that God was interested in them individually, personally. And so suddenly they realised that God isn't just a God up there somehow aloof, somehow majestic and glorious, running an entire universe, and I'm just here doing the best I can. No, we realise we discover God in a way to say that God is personally interested in me. These are powerful revelations, transforming revelations. 
And people have experienced healing, experiencing touch of God in some way, have come to a discovery of God in a whole new dimension in their lives. And the other thing, very simply, is that people were living somehow locked within their pain or their, their, their disability, their, their difficulty, their darkness. And it would seem this was consuming. We heard that powerful story of that, of that young woman from Belgium. You know, locked in darkness and set free and given light and freedom and seeing things, seeing the world, seeing their own life in a totally new way. This is what God does. This is what Jesus did in his ministry. This is what God continues to do in us. As the Gospels tell us, as um, Jesus began his public ministry, the crowds grew, and I get the impression that, that slowly groups around Capernaum grew bigger and bigger. People started coming from different uh, villages, and they started coming from all around the Sea of Galilee. Then gradually the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger, and there are thousands. But there was a feeding of the 5,000, wasn't there? And that was just the men. You know, the thousands of people. So you can imagine that as that story around the feeding of 5,000 tells us, the people came quite long distances. What was happening? They were hearing about Jesus. Maybe people were going back to their village and said, oh, look, I was there and Jesus healed this blind man. And they're telling stories like this. And people say, I've got to come and, and see for myself. I've got to, I want to come and meet this Jesus of Nazareth who's doing all these extraordinary things. Or people are saying, well, I was just sitting, I was just spellbound as Jesus was speaking. What he was saying was a, a truth that was kind of liberating, a truth that was kind of revealing things that I've never heard before. I've never seen life like this. I've never understood things about, about, about my faith, about, about God, until this man spoke. And when he just spoke, I don't know, I just was captivated. I was just absolutely engaged. And, and so people are going back to their villages and say, Wow, I was just in the crowd and listening to Jesus. He's extraordinary. His, his words are just inspiring. So you can imagine that this kind of news is, is spreading through the villages and towns and people, everybody, everybody's talking about Jesus and Nazareth. Everybody's talking about him. And so the crowds are growing and growing. And more and more people are coming. And, and they're even coming distances where, whereby... They just want to stay with him. You know, they don't think, oh, you know, okay, one hour with Jesus, then I've got to get back and, and cook the evening meal. You know, they, they just could So much so that they don't want to leave. They don't want to go. They want to just stay and soak it all up, soak up the environment, soak up the excitement, soak, soak up the extraordinary things that they're witnessing and seeing happening. And they've never seen anything, never imagined this kind of stuff could happen. And so they're with him and, and they, 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 they don't... They forget about getting food and providing for their needs because they're just so captivated, so engaged with this Jesus of Nazareth. And that's when Jesus said, these people will be with me now for a couple of days. I'm not the week. We better feed them. And then we have that extraordinary miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. So this was Jesus' public ministry. About three years 
that he was doing this. And he, and he was going around, visiting. He didn't want to stay in one place. He wasn't just waiting there and all the people were coming to him. He, he wanted to get out. He was going around from town to town. He was going up to Jerusalem, coming back to Galilee. He was, he was meeting people in, in small groups. He, he sometimes would say to somebody, I, I, I want to, you know, like Zacchaeus, I'm going to at your place today. And he, he would go into a particular uh, house. He would meet with the people there, share meals with them and talk to them. Other times he would, he would just want to go on to another town, not, not stay in one town for too long. You get, in, you get the sense that Jesus wanted to reach as many people as possible, wanted to get around, move around, touch people's lives as much as possible during these years of his public ministry. But he knew that this was only going to be for a short time. This wasn't going to be, you know, I'm a priest now, I don't know, 40-something years. You know, I, I've had 40 years of doing stuff as a priest. But Jesus only had three years. And it's a very short time. Three years goes like that. And what is interesting is that while you look at Jesus' ministry and say, well, he was just giving these three years of complete and total devotion to the needs of the people in all sorts of different ways. But then... Um, he knew that his time was limited. He knew that then his life would actually culminate in his death. And Jesus knew he really came to die. He knew that his life was ultimately to be that moment of sacrifice of himself on behalf of a sinful humanity and crying out to his Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Bring healing, forgiveness, bring reconciliation between between God and humanity. That was to be the climax, the culmination of his life. So were the three years just preparatory? Were they just providing teaching and, 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 and instruction and healing to the people? No. There was, there was a, a deeper intention, a deeper purpose. If you like... From the very beginning, and when you, when you look at the Gospels, it's very interesting to note this. If you like, Jesus, from the very beginning of his public ministry, short as it was going to be, and culminating in his death on Calvary as it was to be, he had, if you like, a very specific, what I could call in one sense, a strategic plan. That's what they use these days, a strategic plan. From the very beginning of his public ministry, while it would seem that his whole focus was just on reaching out to the crowds and, and going everywhere that he possibly could, con contacting people, speaking to individuals as well as large groups, behind it all was actually a strategy, was actually a plan, was actually a very clear intention. We see it from the very beginning of the Gospels. Because Jesus did, was doing two things when he began his public ministry. The first thing was, as I've described, going out preaching to the, to the multitudes. But the second thing he was doing was calling individuals. Peter, come follow me. James, John, come follow me. Matthew, like a tax collector, as a tax collector, come follow me. He is calling disciples. Now, this was very, very deliberate on his part. Really, in the end, what Jesus was doing 
was preparing to establish the church. The church wasn't an afterthought. The church wasn't saying towards the end of his public ministry, right, time's running out, I better do something to get myself organ to get things organised for when I go. No, if you, if you look back, look at the gospel, see from the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus had the church in mind. Jesus was planning to establish the church and the church was going to be the instrument to carry on his ministry down through the ages. And so Jesus was preaching. He was talking to people about the fact that the kingdom of God is close at hand, that God is going to come and act and move in human history. But at the same time, he's preparing that a church would continue his work. And the way he was going to do that was by gathering particular followers to himself. Now, it seemed to happen in two ways. Those close followers of his were people who just got inspired by, by him and wanted to be with him. And so they were around with them. Like, for instance, there's a whole group of women who followed and, and stayed with Jesus and, and helped look after his, his and, the, and his other disciples' particular needs. So there was this group of people that formed around Jesus. Many of them just were drawn to him and wanted to follow him. A little bit like you had the same thing with John the Baptist, that, that he had... Uh, also people that, that followed him and were, were caught up and, and, and wanted to be engaged in his ministry. As well as those people who were just drawn and wanted to be close followers of Jesus, there were those others, as I said, who Jesus specifically identified and called to himself. And then in a very important moment in the Gospels, and it's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, a very important moment, Luke tells us that Jesus went up the hill, and spent all night in prayer. And then he came down and the whole group of his disciples around him. And he named individuals. Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, Jude. He, he chose from that larger group. So you have the crowds, you have the group of disciples, and then from those group of disciples, he chose 12 in particular. A number of them he had specifically asked to be his disciples. These were to be, and ultimately to be called the apostles. They would be the ones who would be the founding fathers, if you like, of the church. He chose 12. 12 had a symbolic, uh, had a symbolic meaning because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so these would be the 12 tribes, if you like, or the 12 pillars of the church. I'd like to talk a little bit about the idea of being a disciple this afternoon with you. As I said, there are some disciples who are just attracted to the Lord and want to be close to him and want to place themselves uh, under his guidance, and there are others that he specifically chose and, and mentioned individually. Firstly, let's look at the word disciple. Disciple. Our word, our English word disciple, actually is just a really English transliteration of, of the Latin word discipulus. Now, the word discipulus, the Latin word, has, a, has its own origins 
in Latin, of disere, to learn. So a disciple is one who learns or is a pupil. The whole idea of disciple was something which was quite common in the first century world of Judaism. In Judaism, they had had a couple of different uh, religious movements. One religious movement in particular, we, we know because the Lord makes reference to it a fair bit, it, uh, the, the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were those who, who, who were a religious movement in, in, in Israel. And in their desire to live uh, their, their, their Jewish faith strongly and clearly, they would also have uh, people who would come under their guidance and, and they would have disciples. And those who, who became well-trained in Judaism and became teachers and leaders were often called rabbi. The word rabbi means teacher. So you'd have the teacher, the rabbi, and he would have disciples, those who were learning from him and those who placed themselves under the direction and guidance of, of the rabbi. As I mentioned, John himself had, had his own disciples. So it was quite, quite common um, in the religious world, if you like, of, of Jesus' time, that somebody who was a, a recognised teacher would have, would have disciples. And you notice a number of times Jesus himself is called rabbi, isn't it? You hear that? So they use a common term that was around in the culture. Somebody who was a recognised religious teacher was a rabbi. Sometimes you hear the word uh, teacher. You hear that? Jesus, sometimes good teacher. They come up and ask a question of Jesus. Sometimes you use the word master, which has a similar idea to the idea of, of, of a rabbi. So Jesus was attributed these same titles that were common in, uh, in the religious culture of, of the time. As I said, clearly some people wanted to be disciples of Jesus. They wanted to place themselves under his teaching. So they would turn up to things. You know, they would become, um, I suppose in some way, a little like, a little like groupies, isn't it? You know, whenever you know, something's on, you want to be there because and, 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 you just really are inspired and captivated by, by a particular person. So they have those people. I said they're also the other ones who, who were called. I think the idea of calling has always fascinated me. That the Lord calls people, as Jesus did. But there's this idea of calling that runs right through, it goes right back to Abraham in the Old Testament. You think of Moses, the burning bush. You think of the prophets, um, Isaiah in the temple praying and he has this experience of the glory and majesty of God. Yet right throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and indeed right through Christian history, God is a God who calls. God is a God who, who identifies particular individuals and speaks to them directly and calls them into being disciples in one way or another. I find that really interesting. See, God is a God who doesn't just sit back there and wait for things to happen. God is active. God is engaged. As we see, God, God engages with human lives because he wants to be engaged with, with human lives. You know, there's a passage in St John that's probably very familiar. It's, a, it's a really worth thinking about. You do not choose me. No, I chose you. You know, often we, we probably say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm a 
practicing Catholic now because that's what I've come to realise, that's what I want to do you know, with my life and so on. You know, in other words, I've made a decision to be a, a, an active Catholic or I've made a deci- decision to get involved so I've come along to, to the mission school or whatever. That we, we often think, and it's right because we do have our freedom to make decisions, to make choices ourselves. So I, I make a choice to follow Jesus. I make a choice to be active in the church. I make a choice to attend religious events. I'm sure God just looks down and says, no, no, no. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I've actually been working in your life. You haven't noticed it. You haven't realised it. You haven't understood it. But I've actually been working in your life, often quietly, in hidden ways. I've touched your life here. I've, I've, I've wanted to, to reveal something to you here. I've, I've allowed this situation to come. And at a particular moment, I feel you've been ready. And so I've said something to you. Or your heart has just been in the right place. And so I've been able to move with my grace and touch your life. Look what God does. You did not choose him. He chose you. Now we've responded. We've said yes. We've engaged in various ways. But in the end, it's all grace. It's all God's mercy. It's all God's love. It's all God's way of moving and touching and influencing our lives. So Jesus forms disciples. Now, I'd like to just talk a little bit about what, what does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is certainly one who will want to learn from the master. So I think, firstly, and I'm sure we're all here with that quite deliberate purpose. We, we've come to the mission school because we want to learn, because we want to grow, because we want to receive some input that's going to help us and nurture our faith and give us insights and, and give us further knowledge and understanding of Scripture and so on, the Catholic faith. So, so certainly, you know, we're, we're there to learn. But in a very particular way, a disciple is one who wants to allow themselves, their whole selves, to be transformed by the Master. See, a disciple is one who just doesn't come to get intellectual information, just doesn't come to, to receive detail. And certainly a disciple is not one who just comes to get a whole set of laws and rules and regulations and, and ways in which... Uh, I'm meant to live. Now, that's, it, it, that is part of Christianity. The key to being a disciple, though, is, in fact, the quality of the relationship with the Master. Remember, the people wanted to come and be in the presence of Jesus. They wanted to learn from him. They wanted to be nurtured by him. So it's not so much about learning information, now, that has its place, and obviously it's valuable. But in the end, it's about allowing the master to shape and form us. One of the things I found very, very interesting, Jesus, a number of times, you'll notice this in the Gospel, a number of times Jesus would be talking to the crowds and then he would take his disciples aside and say, listen, guys, I've got some things I want to talk to you. More fully. Sometimes I say, now, we didn't quite understand what you meant by that, so he explained that. But really what he wanted to say is, look, 
as my disciples, I want to give you extra formation and, and I want to devote myself more to giving you more specific formation in your own life. So in other words, what Jesus wants to do is, is to draw aside with his disciples to form them more intensely. They have more personal one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus than just being in the crowds. So Jesus very deliberately forming them, shaping them. And, and the basis of that formation, that shaping, is the quality time that's spent between Jesus and his disciples. So this is how we grow in discipleship. Not so much just getting information. And certainly not so much just in getting some rules and regulations that they've got to abide by. The way we grow in discipleship is actually spending time with the Master. And somehow, something of the Master rubs off on us. You know, you know when, you, when you have a very close friend, do you find sometimes your little, little quirks of language or whatever influence you? So you might use a little quirky thing they say, use one of their little phrases or something like that. You know? So in a relationship where we're very close and very open to another person, that person's personality, that person's character, that person's little, maybe little quirky things, rub on, up, rub, rub on off, off on us and influence us. You know? that's, that's what discipleship is. It's, it's actually allowing the Lord to, to, to change us in ourselves, in, in our character, in our way of acting, in, our, in, in a whole way in which we go about life. And, and what is important, of course, is the relationship spending time with the master. And there's no replacement for that. So becoming a disciple of Jesus isn't getting a degree in theology. It's not just studying the thing. That, again, has value and so forth. There's no escaping spending time with the master. And how do we do that? We all know, don't we? We've got to pray. If you don't pray, if you don't give time to the Lord, you're not going to grow as his disciple. It's not just having a set of things that I've better do these things. It's actually giving time. There's no replacement for it. And there's nothing more beautiful than it. And so again, we mentioned before about, about adoration. That's why that is so beautiful and powerful and transforming. But what are we doing? We're sitting with the master. We're sitting with the master. And I bet every time you're here sitting with the master, he's talking to you. He's moving because you're giving him your time, your attention, your openness, your willingness to allow him to reveal himself to you, allow him to transform you, allow him to shape you more and more to be a true disciple. Because the other thing that's very, very valuable is to actually read the scriptures and in particular, of course, to read the gospels. Again, there's no replacement. Because the gospels will, will, will speak to us constantly about, about Jesus. You know, and we'll watch what he does. 
will see the compassion he has towards people. And, and we, will, we will know that that's how I want to be too. I, I want to have that same compassion towards, towards people who are in need. Or, and we will listen to his teaching. Unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That will grab you. And there's a truth there. You know there's a truth there. You might, you might be able to kind of get onto it straight away, but you'll know the Lord is speaking a truth there that you want to embrace. And so you say, well, how do I do that? How do I become like a little child? You know, all the, all the other teachings, the Beatitudes, that's another poor in spirit. You know how countercultural that is. That's the exact opposite to what the world's saying. But you know there's a truth there. You know that the Jesus is saying something which is profound, which is freeing, which is life-giving. And so you're hearing the Master speaking to you. But he's not giving you rules. He's speaking to your heart. And that's where the change takes place. It's when the Master speaks to your heart. You know it's true. You know it's the way to go. And you want to go there. And you will go there. Because slowly, bit by bit, the Lord is changing you. You're becoming his disciples. You're becoming more like the master. But it happens often subtly. It happens often without you being aware of it happening. It's not as though you can quantify the stages of your growth. You mightn't even realise the particular areas of your life that are changing, but they are changing. They are changing. And so this is being a disciple. There's a phrase that, um, uh, uh, that I think is a really good phrase, and I'd like to offer this to you this afternoon. It's a, an idea promoted by an American writer, uh, Sherry Waddell. She talks about the idea of being an intentional disciple. I think, I, I think that's a very useful term at the present moment, an intentional disciple. I think what it says firstly is that in one sense, every person who has faith, every person who believes, is technically a disciple. But to be an intentional disciple is to make a decision. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to fashion my life around being a true and faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. To make the decision to be an intentional disciple, say, I'm going to walk this path of discipleship. I'm actually going to seek to grow to be more and more like Christ. This is going to be my life work. This is going to be the path I choose. This is going, this is going to be what I want. As a Catholic, I, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. And therefore, I'll do the things that are going to foster and nurture that capacity to be 
a disciple. And so I will seek to spend time with a master whenever I can, whatever opportunities I have. I want to be with the master because I want he, I want to be formed and fashioned by him. I want to, I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to really listen to the scriptures. I'm going to want to listen to them from my heart. I want to go, I want the Lord to speak to the very depths of my being, the truth that he contains, that he gives us in his teaching. So I'm going to allow the Lord to shape and mould me. So I think that idea of being an intentional disciple, Sherwood all makes a very good point in her writing. She says, says, in the current climate, you won't survive as a person of faith without the decision to be a disciple because the powers of the world around us are too great. The influences that we're constantly exposed to are just too great. And, and, and therefore, if we just go with the tide and try to be a, a, a good and decent person kind of thing, it won't work. You won't survive. The world now in which we live is not conducive to faith, is not conducive to being able to be a, a truly spiritual person, not, a, not conducive to really living the Christian life. In other words, we can't just have it there as a nice idea to try to be a Christian. I think we've got to be intentional, deliberate, purposeful. I am going to be a disciple of Jesus. And I'm going to walk that path of true discipleship. Now, I have to say, I'm not going to be a bed of roses. The Lord himself made very clear not going to be easy. You're going to get persecuted. And I, hate to, I hate to say this, but you guys are going to come under some serious persecution in the years ahead. I like to say that persecution is the default position of being a Christian. So don't think, being a Christian, I expect the world to really think marvellous thoughts about me and take the opposite view. If I'm going to be a serious Christian, I know the world's going to reject me. Once we accept that and say, okay, that's the way it is, that's the default position of a Christian, you just go ahead. You don't worry about it. <laughs> just go ahead. You end up being dragged before tribunals like I was. You know, you don't worry about it. You just, but I'm going to be a disciple because that's more important than anything else. It's not the way the world thinks about me that's important. It's not. It's not my social standing. It's, it's not that I've got a million friends. It's not that everybody thinks that I'm, I'm wonderful. There's only one person that counts, and that's Jesus, and that's my relationship with him. That's the only thing that counts. I don't care about anything else. So being a disciple, I'm prepared to accept the fact that uh, it's not going to be easy. And Jesus said that, unless you prepare to take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. He put, he, makes it very clear. And it's really liberating when you think, well, that's okay. I'm going to do this because I know that this is, a, this is a path to life. This is the truth. And this is going to be the one that will enable me to live my life and eventually be able to stand before the Father with, with head held high. 
and longing to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words. So I'm going to walk that path as best I can so that when I stand before the judgment seat of God, I will hear those words. Not perfect. He didn't do a perfect job. I know that. But also, well done, good and faithful servant. So if we're prepared to be a disciple, because we know that's what we want to do. We know that's the truth. We know that's life. And we're prepared to, to pay whatever costs may come our way in being a disciple. I think there's one final thing. And it's a prayer that I, I, that of St Ignatius Loyola that I've been using uh, during the past year, in particular in Tasmania. Last, during 2018, I made a decision that, that as bishop, I would go around to every parish, we've got 25 parishes in Tasmania, we'd go to every parish and I'd preach the gospel one night, just give a, 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 a basic presentation of the correctness. I've been doing that, wandering around to different parishes. And at the end of the night, what I ask people to do, we, we have exposition of Blessed Sacrament. And then I, uh, I give all the people there a, a simple a little prayer card which has a prayer of St. Ignatius Loyola. It's called a sushipe prayer. Sushipe is a Latin word for offering. It's an offering prayer. Because what I realise is that what, to be a disciple, we, we, we do need to offer ourselves completely and totally to the Lord. I'd like to read that prayer just to conclude. And maybe for a moment, as you've been listening to me, if you're sensing, I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to follow the Lord. He's going to be my master, my teacher, my rabbi. I'm making that decision. And therefore I'm going to offer everything to him. That's what Ignatius did. And look at the extraordinary things that happened as a result of his decision to be an intentional disciple. This is his prayer. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, my entire will. I give all to you. You have given all to me, and to you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That's enough for me. Your love and your grace. That's enough for me. Amen. That was Archbishop Julian Porteus with Discipleship. This talk was recorded at the Immaculata Mission School 2019 at the Glenny School in Toowoomba, Queensland. To hear more talks from Immaculata Mission Schools from years gone by, and to hear other great Catholic talks, interviews and shows, head over to cradio.org.au.